The upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. John Paz, and with me as always is the star of the show, former WWE Tag Team Champion, eight-time Smoky Mountain Wrestling Tag Team Champion, as well as one of the greatest trainers in the history of professional wrestling. He is the Doctor of Desire, Tom Pritchard. Tom, how are you today? John, I'm hanging in there like I think the rest of the world is too. We're kind of hanging by a thread, but we still got our hands on it, so I think we're good. Yeah. And uh, with all this craziness going on, I guess JPWA, like we mentioned before, it's kind of uh, on a small hiatus, right? It is. We, we are taking, uh, I guess you could call it a small hiatus. I hope it's a small hiatus. We, uh, I think we're, we're playing it by ear just like everybody else is. We don't want anybody to get sick. We certainly don't want anybody to get uh, uh, hurt or, or come a long way for, for nothing. But uh, as soon as we are up and running again, It'll be on our social media pages and uh, letting everybody know what our plans are. Nice. Now, kind of uh, getting away from reality, I guess, or getting away from the craziness for a minute, we'll get into the Taking to School episode. And this one is very interesting, and I hope you remember this quite well. I'd like to talk to Tom. Infamous Continental Championship Wrestling from 1998. I like to talk to Tom Angle. Do you first of all? Do you remember what I'm talking about? I'm going to guess yes. Well, yeah, I, I remember pretty much what you're talking about. How can I forget? How can I forget such a monumental moment in my life? What a! If you just go back and you think about it, what a crazy, crazy kind of infamous moment in wrestling history, of course. Like I mentioned, 1988 Continental Championship Wrestling. You are called to the interview podium, podium excuse me, by Lady Mystic. So it basically is going to start to one of the craziest and wildest angles I've seen in wrestling history. And I know craziest and wildest wrestling fans have seen, but kind of just rewinding a bit, CCW, Ron Fuller, he's the owner and operator. What, you know, what are your thoughts on CCW as a whole and Ron Fuller? Well, well, let me let me uh, I'll answer that question gladly because I, I think the world will run. But let me let me just uh, clarify a few things. At this time, uh, when we did this uh, this particular angle, Eddie Gilbert was booking, and I believe Ron had already sold it to David. Oh gosh, what's his last name? Uh, Montgomery, Alabama. I can't remember his last name. David Wood. David Woods. Thank you. Um, 
David Woods had bought it, and Eddie Gilbert had come in. Paul dangerously had had come along with Eddie, and I, I don't recall how long Eddie actually had the book or how long it was there, but it wasn't long uh, after what we did with uh, the Lady Mystic and the DWB that he was out of there. He left, and um, uh, but but prior to that, I had been there for a little bit, and I I first got the Continental Championship Wrestling uh, through Brad Armstrong, and that kind of led me to working with Robert and Jimmy and Robert Fuller and Jimmy Golden, and also getting to know Ron pretty well, too. And I have the utmost respect for all the, the Fullers, the Welches, the Goldens, uh, as well as the Armstrongs, that goes without saying, in, in that area, because they uh, not only gave me a huge opportunity. They gave a lot of guys huge opportunities that wouldn't get opportunities elsewhere. And then we were aware of that. We were, I, I think everybody that went there understood uh, that was what the territory was. It was a pretty much a place to go and get an opportunity to work in angles and uh, chill out, have fun, relax, and um, make a living. So the my respect and admiration for Ron Fuller goes back many, many years, and he, he he's always been great to me, and, and so has Robert and, again, Jimmy and the Armstrongs, too. So it was during that time that I think Ron, in fact, I know Ron had uh, sold that end, or Continental Championship Wrestling anyway, uh, to David Woods in Montgomery, Alabama. David owned a television station, and... Uh, uh, and I actually spoke to Ron about this not too long ago on his podcast. Um, he asked me what uh, what the boys thought when, when he sold territory. And I can tell you, or I told Ron that I could tell him what I thought. I don't know what everybody else thought, but, you know, the writing was on the wall. The business was changing. And and uh, I just thought that Ron was looking for somebody to unload it on. And he laughed because it was true. Uh, so we were we were pretty much there in the midst of change, and Eddie Gilbert, you know, uh, who I thought would, had a brilliant mind, Paul Heyman had a brilliant mind, and uh, uh, had some great ideas. And uh, so that that's that's kind of how I feel about Ron. He he was always a smart guy and always knew when to get out and when to get in. Because I, I think Ron came to Knoxville actually during that time. And opened up USA Championship Wrestling. Um, so it was it was during that time where I stayed. White Boy stayed. I think Wendell Cooley stayed. Danny Davis was there. Um, uh, so there was there was a few of the guys from the crew that stayed, and some came up to Knoxville with Ron. So uh, that and and which led to. Uh, an angle with the dirty white boy and myself. I think I just uh, beat him for the Alabama title or something like that. And I had it for a little bit, and then it was time to drop it. So I came up with the idea. He had, he had found this this girl on the beach, I guess. She was kind of like Mark Lewin wandering out in the ocean, and he conjured her up, you know. And... Uh, so when we, we had to uh, think of some stuff, uh, I just thought, let's, let's use Kim, Mystic, um, Dirty White Girl, whatever you want to call her, 
in this angle where she kind of screwed me out of the title and I would come back next week and cut Tony's hair and uh, the week after that, you know, contrived the the notion that he beat her up and uh, and the only person in the world that could save her would be me. And that's how that happened. Now, you mentioned Eddie Gilbert being the booker and coming in at that point. What are your thoughts on Eddie and his, and his booking? I know you said he had some great ideas and things like that, but what, do you, what were your thoughts on him? He was kind of uh, sometimes a little bit out of left field? Well, yeah, but I don't know if you've noticed or not, but I can be out of left field too, and I oh, appreciated yeah. that. And uh, uh, we both uh, admired Terry Funk, and I knew where, where Eddie's – I knew where Eddie's – line of thinking was going a lot of times and uh he I, you know i'd worked a few on and off times in memphis and in the territory and and i knew the way um you know eddie was brought up in that environment and i knew the way lawler and pardon me dundee and Jarrett thought and a lot the way they did a lot of their stuff and it was um and kind of that that wild and Woolly Tennessee slash Texas action, and uh, so I, 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 yeah, I was I was confident that Eddie had he had a grasp of what he was doing, but um, once again, you know, during that time period in the business, it was uh, still the Wild West. Even though times were changing, you still had your pirates and. Uh, outlaws and, and gypsies and uh, vagabonds, what have you, that were out there. And I think, uh, you know, that that was a spirit in which the business was built on, in my opinion. And I think that was a spirit in which Eddie took it. And uh, to go out there and do things that nobody either wanted to do or afraid to do or couldn't do. And that's that was what Eddie, Eddie wanted to do. He wanted to create magic. And I think Paul Heyman, uh, of course, was just cutting his teeth. This is this is pre ECW, but he, he had a chance to come in and create with Eddie. So I looked at both those guys. Um, you know, you had the East South connection, I guess, and both of those guys had some uh, pretty wild yet substantive substantive, however you want to say it. Uh, Ideas, I think. I mean, there was there was a lot of meat to it, but at the same time, uh, you know, he he, you you could take a a turn off that freeway of ideas and get on the service road and wind up in the ditch and have a hard time getting back on the main road. So uh, that was part of the fun of it too, being that um, unstable, having some unstable stableness, if that makes any sense. Did you think Paul Heyman had, I know we're saying good ideas, he's kind of Eddie's assistant booker, really, but did you think Heyman had some great ideas and was kind of basically going to be the Paul Heyman, or you basically have no idea at this point that he's going to be kind of uh, thought of as well in the high regard in the business in the future? You know what I mean? Is that one of those oh, things yeah. that crosses your mind? Yeah, 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 certainly, because I think uh, the the biggest element, uh, after after learning all these years, uh, the biggest element in having good ideas is believing you have good ideas and believing you have great ideas and the confidence and uh, uh, persistence in trying and and keep trying and, and, until they hit and and 
balls hit more times than they didn't. So did uh, Eddie's. I mean, they were they were in it together, and uh, you could see they came to TVs prepared. Not that uh, Robert and Ron didn't, but they came prepared. They they had ideas where they wanted to go, and they, um, you know, I, I remember when when Eddie first came in. Uh, and we switched TVs from Birmingham Birmingham to Montgomery. Of course, again, David had a TV station in Montgomery. And uh, I remember the crowds were so much bigger. It was at the Montgomery Civic Center. And I, I think it could have been the fact that David was really getting behind it because now it's his company uh, and a combination of also Eddie and Paul really getting behind this and taking the crew that was left behind, uh, myself and White Boy and whoever else was left here, um, and and integrating them with his crew and making it work. So, yeah, you you could see that with Paul. Paul always had confidence. Eddie Hall always had confidence. And, uh, you know, if they didn't, they faked it and they made it. So, yeah, that, that's that's the thing. So this angle kind of comes about you and Dirty White Boy. Like you said, as you're feuding, you shave his head. And obviously it's escalating, escalating. This feud is getting bigger and bigger. So then this angle comes. I'd like to talk to Tom. Lady Mystic brings you out. Well, actually, at first, really, she has that bruise and battered face. Looks like uh, Dirty White Boy. Basically beat the shit out of her. She disrupts the broadcast. She disrupts Gordon Soley. And Gordon Soley kind of, you know, poo-poos and kind of shoes her away. You don't come out at first but she keeps trying to ask for your help and basically, you know, kind of say dirty white boy is doing something. What do you think about Gordon Soli in this role? Cause he, you know, he's so believable. He's so credible. Anything he kind of like either touches or talks about, it's almost like instantly credible. Yeah. I, that was the, the great thing about Gordon. And I, I had known Gordon since the early eighties. I met him in, in uh, Atlanta <laughs> What a great guy. You know, he, he was, um, oh gosh, he, he, if he put, <laughs> I laugh because, uh, in, in FCW, we were, we were watching some stuff one time and we, and we came across the angle, the American dream and myself, we were watching and, uh, we watched the, the interview I did after this angle too. And dream, I thought dream was, of course he could have been, I don't know, just patronizing and say, Oh, that's so good, baby. That's so good. But, but what he was talking about was Gordon, how Gordon could put anything over. If he put his stamp on it, it, it immediately got over. But Gordon, um, was, yeah, he was certainly one of the greatest, uh, announcers, commentators, whatever you want to call them, uh, for that era, no doubt. But he he had something uh, much like Jim Ross has to Jr. When Jr. was on, you know, he worked. I think here's here's the the parallels. Gordon worked for Eddie Graham, and Jr. worked for Bill Watts, and both are so similar. And, uh, you know, I, I think Watts has even credited Eddie uh, for his education in the business, too. And it all points back to Eddie Graham. So um, 
the the great thing about being a, a student of the game and learning and knowing about the history of the business is knowing where everybody's roots were and uh, where they got their education, where they got their knowledge, and, and how they found out these tricks of the trade at the time. So Gordon knew how to sell something as authentic and real uh, and it, because he he felt it himself and, and and got it across that way. So yeah, Gordon Gordon was a, was a key point in selling this thing. Um but but <laughs> he he uh he took it to the next level in my, in my opinion. There's no doubt about it. I mean, he definitely makes it credible immediately. So, you know, he's the announcer. Then he says, you know, I can't help you. You, you have to leave. And, you know, there's nothing he can do. So then she comes out again. This time he's like, you know what? I'm going to get Tom. I'm going to bring him out. And he ends up bringing you out, and you come out to the podium. Do you feel like at this point, like, okay, this is a perfect kind of way to really jumpstart this thing is with him. The, you know, first you're not into it, and then you come out, and then you basically tell her, like, all right, honey, it looks like you got beat up there. Like, you come out kind of very uh, sarcastically. Well, at first, um, Gordon sends – or Charlie Platt goes back yep. to get me first, yep. and I won't exactly. come out to, with, with Charlie. And then when Gordon comes back, you know, I'm, I'm convinced that Gordon is convinced, so I'm going to come out, and I think it was – I, I didn't really trust her at the beginning, and then I'm looking at her eye, and, and I, I'm such a dumb baby face because I get my back turned, and uh, mm. uh, I should have known this this wench uh, couldn't tell the truth uh, to save her life. But um, y- you know, it was it was one of those things. This is how it started. Uh, you know, I, I remember because we went to Columbus, Mississippi on a, uh, gosh, I think it was a Thursday night. And I'd say I remember, then I'd say, well, I think it was Thursday night. Anyway, we went to Columbus, Mississippi. And uh, Tony says, hey, uh, they want to switch the belt. I said, great, because I've been thinking about it too. So what if we do this? I got the idea. We'll have a street fight, and I'll leave this out. And then we said, the next week, here's what I want to do. I'll attack you and... Uh, come in and uh, and take, put my hair up under my hat and come in and nail you with a board, cut your hair. Okay, the next week. I don't know how to get into it, but uh, what if you hang me from the ring? Just hang me. be great. And then we, we started thinking, how would we do going to the hanging? And that's where it came into it, it's going to be Kim who's up to this ruse, and she, she's going to fool me and trick me because I – have a soft spot, soft spot in my heart, I guess. I don't know, but um, we never rehearsed this. We we didn't go out and walk through it. We just talked about it. We, you know, Tony was so proud. He tied a hangman's noose and uh, came and showed me. And uh, <laughs> that night, and I thought, okay, great. So it's now I think about maybe thirty thirty yards, forty yards to the from the. Uh, podium to the ring and and i really didn't think about it i mean he didn't either obviously uh but the deal was you know kim's gonna get me turned around and uh here comes the white boy from behind nails me with the chair uh there was there was was other preparation going on for this match let me let me lay this out to randy collie who just passed away not too long ago uh was in the 
in the territory at the time. And we were laying out the the angle. And Randy says, what you need to do is get a condom. And I don't remember who had the syringe. <laughs> Imagine that in a wrestling dressing room. Somebody had a syringe. <laughs> he drew he drew blood from my arm. Randy drew blood from my arm. Um, put the blood in the condom, non-lubricated, by the way, and uh, tied tied the condom up. But it wasn't tight. You know, it was still kind of uh, th- there was there was air in there still, and it was squashing around. It wasn't as tight as it should have been, obviously. And the deal was going to be, you know, go out to to the promo, go at the interview stand, uh, uh, interview podium, and, and Kevin's trying to explain me, explain what happened, and uh, I'm not buying it, and I, I told him maybe go see a rape crisis center or something like that, and I didn't realize I said that until later on, and people made mention of it, and I thought, what's what's the big deal about that? She's beat up. Uh, but anyway, when, when the white boy hit me with the, the chair, you know, I had my glasses on, I was going to throw my glasses off, the referee was going to come out, make sure he got my glasses so they didn't get busted or anything like that, and then put the, the condom in my mouth after Tony flips the desk and rams me into the set. We destroy the set, and uh, the referee comes to check on me and, and put the condom in my mouth. Well, Eddie wanted something else besides just hanging, and besides just hanging me you know, at, at ringside. I said, well, what if he handcuffs my hands behind my back? He said, hmm, that's good. So without thinking about it, I said, yeah, it'll be great. So we do the angle, and I come out and tell Kim uh, maybe she's in trouble, but I can't help her, and here comes Tony from behind, nails me. The referee comes out um, after Tony throws me into the uh, uh, backdrop, and puts the condom in my mouth. And then uh, Tony proceeds to handcuff me, puts the noose around my neck, and now I think it's sinking in because he goes to drag me, and it's not as easy to go on your knees. I have no way to crawl. I just have to leave it up to him. And he's got to take me off this riser and drag me to the ring. And we didn't really think about that until we're there now. And it's like, oh, Christ. So he starts dragging me, and I start trying to move my legs to, to make it easier, and I can't get up. So uh, as he's dragging me and throws me through the barricades and puts the rope over the top turnbuckle, I'm trying to bust this condom in my mouth. Now, here's a question. Have you ever had a condom full of blood in your mouth? Yeah, no. I get it. Right. <laughs> And, and I don't recommend it either, but anyway, so I'm trying to bite it, and I'm realizing that it's kind of like chewing gum at this point, and there's no, there's no sense. But Steve Armstrong had a, a little piece of blade that he was going to bring out, a razor blade he's going to bring out in case it didn't break, and he was going to pop it, which he does at the end of this thing, but they don't get it on camera, uh, to go all over this yellow shirt I'm wearing. And... um Anyways, Tony's choking me. He's really choking me. I mean, it, the the noose is tight. There's no way to, to grab it with my hands, <clears throat> and I can't tell him, and we're filming. So, I mean, it's it's for a good uh, however long he had me up there. I don't know if it was 30 seconds or whatever it was. Uh, I'm holding my breath, and uh, he's, he's not really pulling on it, but you don't have to pull on a noose very hard. 
to uh, cinch up on it, and it'll it'll tighten up on its own. And it did. So I'm there choking uh, on TV while they're trying to describe this, and then as the baby faces come out for the big save, you can see Steve. Uh, they're all around me. He, he, I try to put the condom out there. He pokes it with the blade, the point of the blade, and then uh, you see him drop his head because he said it just stunk. The blood stunk in there. You know, it was terrible. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah. So, it was, you know, we, we got the point across. But but here is the kicker of the whole thing. You know, we, we went to this extreme for this angle, and I think it drew about the same house it did that, that week the next week. So, you know, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a big uh, – it didn't draw like we would hoped or thought it would, but again, I, I think uh, there was a like a special on at Lowe's that day, so everybody rushed out to Lowe's to get it. Or Seven Eleven had a Slurpee <laughs> two for one special. I don't know. We, you know, we had all the excuses in the world. Just the fact is, it didn't draw. Uh, but we had fun doing it, and we're still talking about it. What thirty thirty years later? Thirty? Mm-hmm. My God. So. Um, but it was, uh, it was certainly an interesting time and I, and in, I don't think we could have done it anywhere else, but in Alabama at that time, there were still wrestling fans out there and I, you know, they, they, they still supported their local wrestling uh, organization to an extent, obviously, if they wanted to come see it, they did, but, uh, that was it. I mean, we followed up and did promos, and I think we came back in some Alabama street fights again, and maybe a maybe a chain match or two. I don't I don't remember. I just remember being a little disappointed that we didn't do more business with it, but but we had a good time. Now, you could kind of rewind just a second. Think about this: you're actually being choked for real. You had your handcuffed behind your back. So there's no way usually you see it in wrestling or wherever else, you know, you put the finger in between the neck and the noose to try to make sure there, there, there's some breathing going on. But when you have two hands handcuffed behind your back, it's impossible. Did you think about that beforehand? Like, no, this might be dangerous. No, 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 really didn't. And that's what I mean. We didn't really rehearse it. We didn't, uh, we just talked about it. Um, but I, honest to goodness, um, I really didn't think about it. And it kind of goes back to, uh, I hate to say it, but I'll say it. You know, we used to, <sighs> there, there used to be some people who who go out and, um, you know, like Wahoo McDaniel, Johnny Valentine, used to enjoy just beating the living hell out of each other. In safe, I mean, Wahoo would chop the living shit out of Johnny, and he would just sit there, and it, he'd get goosebumps. He'd like it. And uh, I remember on, a, on more than one occasion, I'd, I'd work with Danny Davis, Nightmare Danny Davis, not the New York Danny Davis, but, but OVW Danny Davis. And, you know, we got into a, a, a not a contest, but into a uh, – a deal where, you know, Danny was, was one of those guys known for his chops and I would chop somebody once in a while in the ring too. And he chopped me, I think six times in a row one night and I just kept selling. I wouldn't go down. I kept selling and my, he would, he drew blood, he drew blood, but it was one of those things that, um, 
it didn't hurt. It was almost, I want to say inviting, but that's not the right word. But it was like I, I, I was I was enjoying selling it and taking it and and having that that reaction and knowing how how it was uh, uh, being received by not just the crowd but but in the back the guy said holy Christ who'd you piss off it was like no it wasn't that it, it's the fact that that the people could see it was real the people could see you were laying into it and people see there was no uh, we weren't powder puffing it he would chop me and chop him back and then all of a sudden uh he gave me like six in a row and in the blood <laughs> he, he opened me up on my chest same thing with this you were he was choking me i had my hands behind my back there was no way uh to get my fingers in there so i mean how do you do that well you just do it and um yeah. I don't know about these days, but but I've had an experience with with a couple people. You know, when we're in the ring, and I'm trying to explain to them, some things have to be laid in, like a forearm, like a chop, uh, in safe places, of course. But you've got to have that authenticity. You've got to have some of that realism into this. And even though it may not be, uh, it is real. But even though it may not be real to some people, it, it's it's got to be real to you when you're in the ring so you can feel it and make everybody else feel it. And it just goes back to if it's real, everyone will feel it. They'll they'll, they'll get it. If, if you're feeling it, then they'll feel it. And uh, that's the mentality I took with it. It was like I've always gone into the, into the ring with the attitude that um, – there's a chance I'm going to catch one tonight. <laughs> one or two potatoes, maybe it's just, it's all part of it. It's not ballet, and and that's kind of how I always uh, looked at things. Is that one of those things, especially in this instance where you're doing it, you get some more respect from the boys, or the boys are like, "Man, you're crazy for doing that," and and really kind of not protecting your neck. You could have you know, really choking there, respecting, or they think you're crazy. I, I think probably both. Uh, you know, knowing knowing my personality too. I mean, I I'm not. Um, uh, <laughs> I would think we're all crazy for even wanting to do this in the first place. But it was just one of those things that that if you if you took pride in your work, if you respected what you did and respected the guy you're in there with, you want to make him look good too. And you, in in the process, you're going to look good, and and you're going to make the match look good. So. Uh, uh, it wasn't. It wasn't always about, especially back then. It wasn't about impressing the guys in the back. It was about going out and having a, a hell of a match and enjoying yourself. And I, I think, uh, especially back then, but even today, you, you can't go into uh, into a sport or into an endeavor like professional wrestling thinking about. Uh, I'm going to get into this to be a millionaire. Now, I know guys have done it. I know guys have said, I've got into this because I want to make a million dollars. I'm going to be, be rich and famous. Um, okay, and that works for some people. But in my instance, and, and the majority of the guys who actually love this and do it because they love it, you can tell. You can tell by their passion. You can tell by their work. You can tell by the way they hit you. Um, again, it's not. I've been hit stiff, and I've been hit solid. And there was a difference. You know, stiff hurts. Solid, you're going to feel it. And does it sting? Yeah. 
Sometimes it does. But at the same time, that's what you're out there to do. And uh, I, I think yeah, I, I knew I was crazy when I got in it. I accepted that. And uh, I just wanted to, wanted to do what I wanted to do. So kind of went with it. When a group of baby faces run out and save you and kind of basically let you breathe again, is that a real sigh of relief? Like, ooh, that could have went bad for a minute. Like, who damn. Well, well, you know, I was telling them when they come out, you know, lift my feet up, man, please, and do this rope. It's choking me and do this rope. So it took them, I don't know, a few seconds, five seconds, whatever it was, to to loosen it up. But um, I don't think <laughs> – Maybe I'm crazy. Uh, chances are, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I I don't think that uh, there there ever was a time when I said, "Oh, this could be it." You know, it's like uh, here here's another story. When I first started out, you know, I was wrestling in Los Angeles at the Olympic Auditorium, and Tom Renesto Sr. came in after Chavo left and took the book, and Tom Renesto Jr. his son came in with him. And Tom Sr. had been the assassin most of his career. So in 1980, now he's coming in from Georgia to uh, book for Michael Bell. And he gets Tom Jr., who is now wrestling as the assassin under the hood, and myself together. And we're going to go out. Here's here's a topic for you. We're going to go out in an empty Olympic auditorium Hmm. on on a Wednesday afternoon. Now, when they, they're going to tape it on Wednesday, and they're going to show it Saturday, uh, Sunday afternoon, like it's live. We had to come down to the Olympic Auditorium on a Sunday afternoon in front of no people, just the guys uh, around the ring as lumberjacks, all the crew around the ring as lumberjacks, uh, because back then, at this time in L.A., this particular TV station didn't want to have, you couldn't just go on and talk uh, about your match. You had to have some action in the ring. Uh, so Jeff Walton would go around to each guy and say, Walter Johnson, you, you, what do you think about Cowboy Tom and the assassin settling their differences here? And <laughs> they, they want to do it alone, just you guys around the ring. No, no fans, just settle their difference. And Walter would say, well, I hope they get it straightened out. And, oh, by the way, this Friday you have a match against uh, uh, El Gran Goliath. What do you – all that bullshit. So at the end of the match, Tom wanted – Tom Sr. wanted Tom Jr. to uh, punch me in the eye, give me a black eye, and that would um, uh, keep our feud, this, this red-hot feud we had. This is the first time we'd ever been in the ring with each other. But yeah, was, and that was crazy in itself. But anyway, keep this feed going. So he says, "Would you mind doing a getting a black eye at the end of this match?" No, sir. I wouldn't mind at all. So, in the famous Olympic Auditorium, they had this huge digital clock on the wall. You can see it in most of the pictures if you've ever seen pictures from the Olympic from wrestling. John Tolis, Freddie Blassie, Mel Mascaras. You can always you, you can pretty much see this digital clock, and Michael Abel played counted down the clock however much time you had for TV for the house show whatever he put that exact time on the clock and it would tick down. So we had 15 minutes and we're having our match and all the guys are around the ring. 
Jeff is asking everybody about their match Friday night. And we get down to 30 seconds left. And Tom gets me down and says, you ready? I said, sure. He takes and he punches me over the right eye, splits me open, seven stitches. and But, but it looks great. Gives me a black eye and gets stitches. Blood comes everywhere, man. My eye is a mess. It looks great. Well, this is prior to the Wednesday TV taping. So we st- I still have two more matches to go. When when the crowd gets in, I have two matches that night on TV. And this is supposed to be happening live Sunday. So my eye can't be split open yet. <laughs> so all we do, and Tom tells me, uh, would you just tape it up and work to the left side? Work your left side to the camera so they don't see your eye. I have a black eye. And I have I hadn't had it stitched up yet. He asked me to wait to go to the hospital after the show, too. Now, here I am again, 20 years old. This is all I've ever wanted to do. Now, if this sounds insane and crazy, okay, I'm insane and crazy. But that's what I would do for the business. So I started out early on. And I go back to the story of, again, that's where Ron Starr and Johnny Mantell thought it would be funny to give me a cauliflower ear. Great. Bring it on. Give it to me, because you're not going to make me quit. And I'll hit you back. And if you want to play that game, that's cool. I hope you had fun. But that's that's what it was. The same thing with this, this angle here, whatever it was. I was willing, ready, and able to go ahead and get hung. And I did. And it was real. And I didn't die, obviously. But I felt it. And you could see me choking. You could see me hanging. You could see my face turning red. Um, so when Tom hit me with the with the uh, fist in L.A. and busted me open, I waited, and I taped it up. And I go out and work with a guy named Rick Davidson that night. Hey, Rick, please just stay away from my eye. Yeah, no problem, man. What does he do? Puts my head right on his knee and stomps down and opens me up. I went, okay, I see how this is going. But we worked the blood, man. I mean, it's just the way it was. You can't do that these days. But I went to, I went and got it sewn up uh, afterwards in some L.A. hospital. I couldn't tell you where that was either. But, um, yeah, I was doing empty arena matches, uh, shit, 40 years ago. Look at that, and now yeah. it's all the, now it's all the rage. Now yeah, exactly. See, we we didn't have to have any uh, virus keep us out, man. We just uh, we just did the angle. God, you know what's interesting? You know, you said basically, you know, you're having trouble breathing. Did you black out like at all? Maybe even for a second, because it really looks like you're about to go out if you really, really focus on you. No, I I don't think it did, man. I just, I mean, I remember. Um, maybe I did, but I, I remember, you know, closing my eyes. I remember choking, uh, but that's what you're going to do when you're being hung. And I was, again, you know, I heard this a long time ago too. Guys like Johnny Valentine, Terry Funk, uh, even Mick Foley, um, and, and others, you you can actually feel the pain when somebody has you in a hold, even if it's not being applied to, to the fullest pressure, you can feel it and convey it to the audience and that's that's what I've I've done. You know, I've been very fortunate to to be in circumstances where uh 
okay, if this is as hard as it is or if this is as bad as it is, it ain't that bad. You know, I've seen other people where they go, oh, my God, this this is killing me. You know, Tony, to this day, will say, boy, you sure hit me on the head pretty hard with that board. Oh, wait a minute, man. You know, I've been hitting the head with chairs. I've been hit with boards. And, ah, they were pretty hard. But, I mean, it wasn't anything that I couldn't take. And it sure as hell wasn't anything I would say, boy, you sure hit me pretty hard on the head. Yeah, that's what it's supposed to be. You're going to feel it. <laughs> and and you'll come back and and if that's what you got to do to put it over, and that's great. But, I mean, uh <laughs> it's supposed to be that. If if I was about to pass out, then so be it. And if you killed me, then, hey, we wouldn't have anything to talk about, would we? Or maybe we, maybe we would. Maybe you have this conversation <laughs> with Tony later on. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, maybe we're talking to the uh, dirty white boy. Yeah, so who's, so who's crazy in this yeah. thing, right? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, what's interesting, you kind of mentioned before that yellow kind of ugly, like mustard-stained shirt or whatever you want to call it, that basically crazy yellow shirt you had. I guess – now, looking back, was that on purpose because you were expecting yes. the blood to go all over and it would stick out? Yes, certainly. Certainly was. That was, a, that, was <laughs> that was a lighter shirt I had, I think, at that time. And I said, yes, let's get blood on this shirt so I can throw it away. Yeah, uh, exactly what it was. Uh, so you could see it. I mean, it, uh, the, the Fantastics and the Sheepherders did an angle in Houston, Texas. I, I still yet to find it on YouTube, but I really want to. Uh, and my brother told me about it years ago. They did an angle. They were presenting the Fantastics with this award, and they had the, the white tuxedos on. And here come Luke and Butch. And they massacre Tommy and uh, Bobby. And there's blood all over the white suits, man. I mean, it just it stands out. And that's, that's exactly what you want to do. You want to make it as, as gruesome as possible back then. That's awesome. I'm going to try to seek that out myself, maybe, uh, maybe through other it. means. Maybe it's yeah. on YouTube. Maybe through other means, I'll try to see if I can find that. That's great. Please now, do. With this angle, it is so shocking and so graphic, especially for this time, 1988. It just seems to me like it's just insane. Did Continental CCW, aka CWF, Continental Wrestling Federation, did they get in trouble with these, like TV carriers and stuff that this went out on the air like that? See, I I never. No one ever said that to me personally. I heard that years later that um, uh, whoever got threatened or whoever got her talking to about it, but no one ever said anything to, to me or Tony. Uh, at least not nobody ever said anything to me. They might have said something to Tony, but um, I I never heard that. I mean, it's possible. I've heard through the years, and a couple of people um, at. Uh, the conventions have come up and said, I cried when that happened. And, uh, I was seven years old and saw that and I, I cried. It scared me. And I thought, good, that's, that's exactly the, the feeling we're going for. I remember seeing something with Terry, again, Terry Funk in, in, in El Paso on TV when the Von Brauners came out, these in black suits and in white shirt and black tie and uh, it looked like they had a meat cleaver, and, and, and they hit Terry on the side of his ear, not on his head. He bled from his ear, and then they cut his hair. And and I was I was like, oh, my God, how how can this happen? I mean, that's, that's assault and battery, isn't it? And, well, come to find out, really, it's not wrestling. You're allowed to, I think, do everything except pull a gun. And yet I saw the meme from uh, Japan where the guy actually did pull a gun. Have you seen this yet, by any chance, where the guy is in a – has a hammerlock 
on his opponent in Japan, and he pulls a gun out of his trunks and puts it to his head. Yeah, I can't. Oh I my can't, god! Yeah, no, I, I can't. Yeah, I can't recall where I saw, but it was the comedy uh, wrestling, I guess, because it was one of those bang. You know, the 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 flag comes out and goes bang or something. But it was like, how how crazy are we getting here? So. I remember yeah. there was a. I remember there was a wrestler. I think his name was Dick Justice, who used to pull out a fake gun. Uh, he he was doing a cop gimmick. I remember that. But I'm gonna have to check out the, uh, the Japanese. That's really I, I, interesting. Yeah, I, I don't. I, again, it was a meme, and I don't. I, I it's been a while back, but I just saw it, and I went, now, now we've we've crossed the line. We've jumped the shark. Uh, but yeah, he had a, he had the guy in a hammerlock, and and uh, pulls out a gun and puts it to his head. And uh, I think he pulls the trigger and goes bang with a little flag on it. But but just the, just the, the the fact of doing something stupid like that, you know, Japan used to be this. Uh, <laughs> some some places still are, I guess. Um, but but pretty serious wrestling country and wrestling organizations. You had Bruiser Brody, you had Anoki, you had Baba Fujinami. Uh, Tiger Mask, Liger, my God, man, and now it's reduced to what it is, I guess. That's definitely not all Japanese wrestling. That's just a weird, definitely weird segment of it, but uh, very, very weird. But as far as CWF, a.k.a. CCW, and this angle, so it didn't really register you at the time that it got in trouble with the TV carriers, but can you see, like, complaints coming in? Like, can you... I know you didn't hear about it then, but can you see people definitely complaining like this shouldn't be on TV? They went too far. I mean, it, it definitely is intense and like insane for wrestling. Yeah. Oh no, I, I can see. I could see how they would get in trouble. I can see how there could be some heat. I, I could see it. I just I don't know for a fact, and I'm not saying they didn't. Um, but I, I could certainly see how it could happen, and um, there was. I think pushing limits, uh, Eddie would push limits, and uh, he, he did a deal where he beat up a, 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 a somebody from the audience who was actually his friend, John Gillum from Tenet from Memphis, and uh, go go to extremes to where people would have to wonder, you know, is this is this for real or not? You know, Tony and I did other angles after this, as I said, uh, in in Dothan, Alabama. You know, hit me with a. <laughs> Yeah, we got into a fight in the back, and and they followed us from the back to the to the front of the building, and and we're outside, and there just happens to be an empty beer bottle out there, and he cracks me over the head with that, and it and it, it shattered. Now, you know, if you've ever been hit with a beer bottle, it's not going to shatter, and and you know, first of all, if you got hit with a beer bottle, you might have a concussion, you might die, you could, you know, it's pretty. Some some of the stuff we did, we. I look back on going, yeah, you know, I don't know that I'd buy that either. But that's 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 the vein we were going in, and and uh, you know sometimes you know we'd float down the river in our kayak and and say, hey, this is a great idea. Let's just go down this waterfall and see where it takes us. And that's not exactly you know. The right thing wasn't the right thing to do, obviously, but but it made for some interesting uh, TV, I think. Oh, no it, doubt about it. Yeah. So, 
I, 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 I could see I could see a lot of complaints coming in back then. I just never got firsthand knowledge of it, so there might have been. Another thing I could see big complaints is is the quote unquote woman beating and her coming out with a bruise, right. basically saying, "What do you think about that? You think that's kind of maybe uh, equally as controversial?" <laughs> well, yeah, I do. I mean, for any any time, any. Uh, time in history or, or, or place, you know, you, we can say, well, it's Alabama. That's just a byproduct of living in the state. But no, and, and I don't mean that, that, but, but, you know, you could, you could say and make remarks like that and you get a lot of heat on you. It's like, no, man, some of the stuff we did and, but, but it wasn't just, it was the culture back then. It was professional wrestling back then. It wasn't sports entertainment. It was, it was supposed to be crude and rude and unruly and 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 on the uh, you know uh, outskirts and and uh, people were closet fans because they didn't want to let anybody know they they watched wrestling. I mean, you know, I get it, and I can understand why Vince is so adamant about not calling it wrestling or wrestling. I mean, I can. Um, but at the same time, uh, that's what got us into it. I mean, that's where it originated. And maybe, it could, and, and theory out here, could be why, you know, with all the sanitation or all the cleanliness of, uh, not that that's a bad thing. I, I'm glad they cleaned up the, the business. I'm glad they cleaned up the sport. But I think part of the appeal back then was it was a little more grittier and professional wrestling was more Terry Funk and Johnny Valentine and Walter McDaniel than it was, you know, Ultimate Warrior back then. Of course, Ultimate Warrior drew a lot of money. But when you had um, the real personas slash characters like Jake Roberts, uh, who who really had that element of uh uncertainty and and uneasiness about him he, he he'd walk into a room or he he'd uh uh just say something on TV cut a cut a promo about anything uh anything he talked about could be misconstrued if you wanted it to be because he would make you guess if he meant it this way or if he meant it that way and it didn't matter if you thought this was this and that was that because he could interchange it and make it mean just the opposite in the, with the look of his eye. And that was the cool thing about it is you never knew for sure. And um, even though the people that thought they knew, I was I was watching before we, we, you called me here, I was watching a match um, from Hawaii with Bruiser Brody uh, against the Sheik. And I never knew they really worked together, but it made perfect sense. And Brody wouldn't sell for a guy like the Sheik um, at his age back then. But he sold for the Sheik in this one because he respected him and because he was hardcore and because it was that wild and crazy kind of match. And whenever you watched a guy like the Sheik back then, even though you knew in your heart of hearts this was a work and it wasn't what it appeared to be on stage when he came out, uh, when, when they came out, when Bruiser Brody and the Sheik came out, no matter who they wrestled, 
there was an element of danger in the air. There was an element of I'm not so sure if I'm sure about this guy or or this match because um, they brought that with them. They brought that air of authenticity. Uh, I didn't hear the Sheik talk for years, and then all of a sudden we're in Houston, Texas, and I'm just – I've been Paul's assistant for for a couple of years. I think I'm 18, 17, right about a year before I actually had my first match. And we had to get a guy who brought the snake for the Sheik to walk out with in Houston. He he brought it from a pet store and had to go back to the hallway of the dressing room. And, and the Sheik came out, and he never talked in front of people. But all of a sudden, I remember him telling the guy, to, he said, wow, that's a big fucking snake. And I, I heard him talk. I went, holy shit. Even though I knew, but at the same time, he never let his guard down around anybody. Um, and neither did Brody, and neither did Valentine or Wahoo, or those guys who who were treating this as authentic or at least uh, real when they went in the ring. And, and Valentine's famous quote is, they may not, I'm, I may not believe in wrestling, but they can sure believe in me. I'll make them believe in me. And uh, it's, it's not so anymore. I mean, we've, everybody's been smartened up. Everybody's been told it's a work. But you still have some guys. And, again, I'll go back to Brock Lesnar. Brock is that guy that uh, people will still say, you know, he's a bad son of a gun. He is what he is. And he's not playing a character. He is who he is. And um, that's kind of what we were trying to replicate and do in Alabama when I was hung or when you hit me as hard as you could in safe places I didn't mind as long as it got the effect we were going after and uh, that was a mindset that was a mindset for the angle uh, that was a mindset for having my hands handcuffed behind my back the mindset when we destroyed the set was we're, we're starting over we're going to destroy the continental the CCW set uh, get a whole new look and come back. Well, wouldn't you know it, we got a whole new look for about three months, and, and then they just found the old set that we destroyed and put it back up. You know? Hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's all uh, – this business is about timing, not only inside the ring but outside the ring. And I'm, I'm sure that we're just in a down time right now. And uh, I'm sure it's gonna it's gonna have to come back. It's gonna have to come back full circle because uh, I don't know. I, well, that's just my opinion. I think it'll come back full circle. Now you you mentioned before about how you were kind of surprised, and I'm kind of surprised to hear it. After this angle didn't do big business, didn't draw well. Is that because CCW, aka CWF, was kind of on the way out at this point, were they kind of just on a downturn and it, nothing could kind of save it? Or was it something with the angle that maybe was too controversial where it didn't uh, add to ratings and, and uh, bigger houses? Well, your guess is as good as mine. Um, I, I don't – do you recall when they went out of business? Was it 89? I think it's 89, if I remember correctly. Yeah. So we were we were on the verge, man. We were on the on the tail end of it, and and – so that it could have been that. I mean, times were changing. You know, um, it, it was it was a 
everybody knew that the territories uh, were pretty much going by the wayside. Anybody was smart. Ron, Ron getting out of it was obviously a, a sign on. I could see that a mile away, and most boys too uh, could also see it. So, um, I, it could have been that. Why would you? Why would you come? Get out of your. Uh, come from your living room, get out of your house, uh, when you could see all kind of wrestling on TV back then. And then it was just when you had, uh, I don't think Raw was out yet, but you had a lot of free TV on wrestling, free TV, free wrestling on TV, I'll get it out. And it was WWF wrestling back then. And uh, you could see the spectacles. There was cartoons. There was... um, uh, it was all brand new, and they they were the shiny toys. They they were, you know, the, the the superstars. Lo and behold, and here we were in Alabama every week. And if they wanted to see it, they would. But I think we had been there for a little bit, and I don't know that. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I wish I had the answers. I could say this is exactly why. But uh, speculation. Any reason why Vince didn't kind of gobble it up? He was gobbling up a lot of territories at that point, or even uh, Croc. <laughs> Even maybe Crockett's gobbling it. Uh, no, I think they knew. I mean, look, you, you, the the most interesting thing to me is the history of this business and how it all worked and how um, from from the time the National Wrestling Alliance was formed in the the late 1940s. I mean, you got once again, uh, every everybody was connected everybody was connected all the way through the 80s. I mean, it's just now that we're getting, you know, Vince is, what, 73? Mm-hmm. It's just now that we're getting, um, well, not just now. It's been the last 10, 15 years where the old guard has either faded away or died. And, uh, you know, Don Owen was still part of the first click of uh, NWA promoters, his family, and and uh you know Morris Siegel in Houston then passed on to Paul Bosch and Sam Muchnick was my god you know for years uh, the second NWA president he 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 presided over for years and then all the lawsuits that took place it's it's really interesting and and at that time Vince didn't have to gobble up anybody Ron was just going to give it away and Ron got paid for it uh, David Woods paid for it, and Vince isn't going to come in and say, hey, David, let me negotiate, because David was not, I don't even know if he knew who David Woods was, you know, so um, I, the Alabama Territory was, was pretty much, uh, had seen better days, I think, and, and Vince wasn't going to come in and pay anybody anything, he would just come in and run it. I remember he ran it. <laughs> he ran it a couple times while we were the territory, while we were still doing TV there. Man, I went over to uh, the Civic Center, visited my brother and some of the guys that that I worked with. Man, we we <laughs> we were we were intermingling. We were mingling with the. Uh, they weren't the enemy. They were just, and they weren't. They weren't even the opposition. They were the guys who who drew in the Civic Center when we were at the Boutwell Auditorium in Birmingham. So. It, it, it is what it is, and it was what it was, that's for sure. As far as Dirty White Boy and you and, and, the, and the chemistry, always kind of a great chemistry with, with you guys because it always seemed like electric. It always seemed believable. It always seemed like you guys definitely gelled well together. Well, 
there's there's guys when you get in the ring, uh, the first lockup you can tell. You you just know if if it's going to work or if it's not. And um, yeah, Tony and I always had good matches. Uh, same thing with Brad Armstrong. Um, then I, I had uh, I worked some matches with Roy Lee Welch, and for some reason, you know, Roy Lee was a cousin of uh, Ron and Robert and Jimmy and it was part of the family. So here I am working with a family member, but we just couldn't click. We just didn't gel. I mean, for and we talked about it. Roy even came back and said, I don't know why we're not clicking. We got to work this out. So we would go out and uh, for whatever reason, it just didn't just didn't have the same vibe as, as, as Tony, Tony and I did, or or uh, Brad or I did, oh, and another guy. Most of the Simones uh, that, that I would work with, Alfonsica I worked with in Atlanta early on, would would take care of me like a million bucks. And then uh, Yokozuna came to Birmingham, wrestled with Coquina. I worked with him. I couldn't tell you how many times. And he is a bit, he was a big man then, but he could he would be as light as a feather if he liked you and he liked me. And he would do spots with you to make it look good and make it uh, feel good in the ring and have fun at the same time. So, uh, yeah, Tony and I always clicked. And pretty much you can – I could tell when we, uh, after the first lockup. Uh, Danny Davis and I had this, this deal. You just you, – you didn't have to talk. Uh, a lot of times you would just make a move and either went with it or you didn't. One one of the best matches I ever had, I only worked with William Regal one time, and it was at uh, Deep South Wrestling in McDonough in front of no one, uh, the students. But he just, we were in the ring, and all of a sudden he started circling, and I started circling, and we just locked up. I mean, and we went about, a good 30 minutes. I remember that because I was dripping sweat afterwards. Didn't say a word to each other. Uh, he went for a move. I either blocked it or let him go with it. Same thing. I remember trying to reverse a hammerlock. He cut, he kept me in the hole. I went for something else, and he blocked that. Then I went and ankle-picked him, and he, and he took it. He went with it. And, and that's that's the art form of it is knowing how it is supposed to feel, getting a flow, and if you can go out and have a match without saying a word and body language and looks and uh, getting the flow, getting into it, that's that's why it, it amazes me when people say, oh, yeah, I can do that. I've watched it on TV. I know it. No, you don't know it. And it, it's just like people think they can play football because they watch it on TV. No, you really can't. And same thing with this. I mean, it's a different, a different um, animal, but it's really feeling, and it's really um, understanding what it is, and 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 the story you're trying to tell, and uh, the story you're trying to tell is what you're doing in the ring is believable, and real, and that goes for angles too, because people know if you're mad or if you're not. I saw, I won't mention names, but I saw some some people cutting a promo. In an empty arena, and and instead of just talking, which I know it's different because it's a TV show, but it sounded contrived. It sounded rehearsed. It sounded like you're. These are the lines that you have next. Instead of and 
And it's not that that's bad to have the lines next, but but that's where you you find the strengths and the weaknesses. If you can't deliver it like it's natural and off the cuff and spontaneous, then don't do it. You know, because it's going to come across the other way, and uh, that takes a while to learn. It takes a while to to um to. Uh, let me say, it just takes a while to learn, and that's why not everybody should be doing that. And that's why I think it's better to have unscripted promos if you can have somebody who knows how to hit bullet points. But you've got to learn from the masters. You would have had to have seen Jake Roberts. Jake has a great promo with, about about Ricky Steamboat coming up uh, in a match, and and I started showing that to our guys. Uh, and and there's sure he's got lines in there he wanted to say. Yes, he had his bullet points, but he knew what he was going to say and how to say it. And he was Jake the Snake Roberts. No one else at that time could be Jake the Snake Roberts. And he fit the part. He was the part, and he talked the part. So um, that's that's my take. And I think a lot of those uh, promos that may be on Monday or Friday nights were pretty bad, except for uh, really Randy Orton, if I could just kind of throw my two cents in there. I feel like he nailed it out of the park when, whenever he's but, done doing those empty arena promos. Some of the other ones, not so good. No, exactly. So, but but here again, that's because that's Randy, and, and, and it kind of falls in place with, you say, Jake the Snake. Randy's the viper, man, because Randy is – he's older and he's much wiser, but he understands still how to fall into that climate or fall into that attitude of this is what I mean and this is the way I say it. It's not pretending. It's It's by no means – uh, something he's trying to remember, even though he might be trying to remember. He, it's not like he has to search. <laughs> it, it comes naturally, and it and it's it's uh, pretty fluid when he does it because he believes it, and he knows who Randy Orton is. He knows that he is this kid who came on the scene, the youngest WWE champion of all time, and he's that great he's been that great for years and as he's got older he's understood that he's understood his place in the business he's understood his place in history and he understands what he has to bring to every promo and every performance he goes out and does uh if you feel it and if it's real you'll feel it and and, and the audience will feel it too now as far as some plugs the patreon page for jpwa has been set up and now Maybe more important than ever to get to go up to uh, Patreon and sign up, become a patron, support JPWA, right? I mean, get some tips, learn some stuff while you may have some downtime where you can't actually get in the ring maybe. Learn some things, right? By all means. And, uh, you know, we have no idea how long this blackout is going to be, but uh, I am working on uh, putting some content back on Patreon. We just have to. Uh, decide how and when we would do it and tape it and, and film it or whatever needs to be done. But yeah, um, that that's <laughs> that's pretty much what we got going on. Uh, I don't want to do. I just haven't had the. It goes back to feeling this thing. I haven't had the feeling to go on Facebook Live and, and do a lecture yet because uh, everybody. <sighs> 
Everybody is so preoccupied right now. At least I am. I'm preoccupied with some some things. But we but we have some uh, have some really cool stuff on Patreon right now. We are looking to put some stuff up during this downtime, no doubt. Also, please support JPWA and Dr. Tom himself on Pro Wrestling Tees. There are two great stores available. I love the Wanted Dead or Alive Dr. Tom shirt, but you can definitely get a JPWA Wrestling Academy shirt. Also, check out their website, jpwrestlingacademy.com. You can check out Dr. Tom on Twitter, at Dr. Tom Pritchard. You can check me out, at Two Man Power Trip. And I don't even know about personal appearances for you, Dr. Tom. I know, obviously, the gathering in August, but who the hell knows about anything else? Wow. Yeah, because we had some. (laughs) I had some through April, but uh, they have since been canceled or Mm -hmm. postponed anyway. So, yeah, it's uh, it's throwing, I think, a lot. Well, I don't think. I know it's throwing a lot of people into uh, uh, kind of a quandary here and what to do. But um, everything happened for a reason, I'm sure. I, I don't know why this is happening, but um, I'm sure we'll all get through it. It's it's uh, it's a trying time, but we will make it. And uh, listening to podcasts and watching old matches and new matches and uh, some promos, interviews, and listening to uh, whatever strikes your fancy. I mean, uh, it, it, there's a lot of things out there to study and a lot of things out there to learn. And you might stumble upon them and uh, say, this is the greatest thing on earth. Or you might look at them and go, next. But a lot of things out there to see. Well, hopefully everybody else out there stays healthy, stays safe during these crazy trying times. And we will see you next week. But, of course, thank you, as always, for joining us. This has been Taking You to School with Dr. Tom Pritchard. See you next week, folks. Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling, What the World is Downloading.